Cinema Woman. I'm your host, David, and today is our second episode in our Director's Corner series. Our first focused on Alfred Hitchcock, and today we will take a look at Stanley Kubrick. This Director's Corner series actually came about after my cousin John requested an episode about Stanley Kubrick, one of his favorite directors, so this one is for you, Cousin Johnny. (laughs) Since each director is unique, we're hoping to do something different with each of our Director's Corner episodes. I had seen 38 films directed by Hitchcock, so for that episode, we did a top 13. Stanley Kubrick only directed 16 movies, including shorts, over the years. So what we're going to do for him is present our Mount Rushmore of Kubrick films. Linking Mount Rushmore to movies is nothing new, since the monument has been featured in several films over the years, including National Treasure, Book of Secrets, and Team America, World Police. Mars Attacks uh, redid the famous four with Martian images, uh, but I liked that trick the first time I saw an alien takeover of the monument, which was in Superman 2, when General Zod and his crew replaced our presidents. Kneel before me, son of Jarrell. Arguably the most famous use of Mount Rushmore in movie history is Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, where the monument is used for a climactic chase sequence. Since Hitch was our first guest on Director's Corner, it makes total sense that he would have a link to the second in the series. Now, when it came to Kubrick, choosing just four films directed by this legendary, controversial, award-winning, critically acclaimed filmmaker was quite a task. Kubrick's films were nominated for a total of 27 Academy Awards, winning nine. Kubrick himself was nominated 13 times, but only won one Oscar, Best Special Effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a shameful total one for such an influential filmmaker, kind of like Hitchcock, who won zero. A lot of thought went into our choices, uh, and we think that you may be surprised at what misses being etched into our cinematic granite today. If you stick around, I may run through uh, 16 to 5 because, uh, yeah, I I did rank them all. But first, Cinema Wellman, Stanley Kubrick, Mount Rushmore. In no particular order, since George, Abe, Teddy, and TJ aren't in any particular order either. Unless it's an order that I don't know about. Was that part of National Treasure Book of Secrets? I'm not sure. I fell asleep in the theater for that one. Ask Dakota and Hannah. I shit you not. But that's another story for another day, maybe. Movies you have fallen asleep during. Uh, But first, we will begin with one of the best war movies of all time. It's from 1957, and it's Paths of Glory. Not only is Paths of Glory considered one of the best war movies of all time, it's also considered one of the best anti-war movies of all time. Generalissimo Francisco Franco, who is still dead, banned this film in Spain for its anti-military message. The film was also banned in France for its negative portrayal of the French army. Winston Churchill, a World War I veteran, claimed that it was extremely accurate in its depiction of trench warfare. Like many of Kubrick's films, Paths of Glory got a lot of worldwide attention. He just made those types of movies. Paths of Glory is an unflinching look at the horrors of war, and as wars go, World War I is considered to be one of the most horrific. Kubrick touches upon the unfairness of war, how soldiers are looked at as disposable, corrupt officers letting innocent men be executed to cover up their mistakes, and also the meaning of cowardice 
in this heartbreaking film. You wouldn't think it while watching, but this film was shot for under a million dollars, which is absurd when you think about movies these days. And amazingly, $300,000 of that $1 million budget went to Kirk Douglas's salary. The title comes from Thomas Gray's Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. And the quote, the entire quote is, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. So true. Kubrick was known for doing take after take after take, sometimes infuriating his actors. We're talking 40, 50, even 70 takes. Other directors are known for their speed and one takes, not Stanley. Uh, in Paths of Glory, Adolf Manju is one of the actors, and Kubrick had him do take after take after take after take, and after like the 40 or 50th one, Adolf Manju just exploded, and he he went up one side of Kubrick and down the other, and and insulting him and and you direct you don't know what you're doing anymore and you have no idea what you're doing these are good takes and and you're you're unprofessional you just all over him and Kubrick just sat there and listened to the whole thing and then he just said okay so we're going to do the scene again right and Adolf Manju did the scene again <laughs> um, if you haven't seen it Paths of Glory would be a tremendous opener to a World War I double feature followed by Sam Mendes' powerful film 1917. Sam Mendes would probably be the first one to tell you how much he was influenced by Paths of Glory while making 1917. Next up is another war movie. Parts of it are just as horrifying, but this one is also insanely funny. It's from 1964 and it's Dr. Strangelove or... How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This film is the answer to the trivia question, what is the longest title for a movie nominated for a Best Picture Oscar? It will also have you wondering how much of this Cold War satire is absolutely true when it comes to our military. I think some of what goes on is closer to the truth than we'd like to believe. The great Peter Sellers was paid 55% of the film's $1 million budget. Again, this is insane. But he does play three roles in the film, and Kubrick later quipped that he got three for the price of six. And Sellers is amazing in this movie. Although he's the title character, Dr. Strangelove isn't on the screen that long, but I guarantee you that you'll be laughing every time he shows up. The recurring gag of him misspeaking by calling people Mein Fuhrer and him physically restraining himself from giving the Hitler salute is just hysterical. He was such, he was such a magnificent physical comedian. And only, you know, look at it, those Pink Panther movies that he made. He was just wonderful. Uh, in an instance of movie world colliding with real world, a plane during filming, a plane in this film was forced down over Greenland after unknowingly filming a secret U.S. military base. Luckily, the real-world people in charge weren't like the movie people in charge or the plane would have just been shot down. Another real-world connection. When President Reagan was elected, he thought the White House had a war room since he had seen it in this movie. A binder in that war room was labeled World Targets and Mega Deaths. Maybe Reagan would like that. There is no such room. The cast in this film is top-notch. Along with Sellers, we have George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, James Earl Jones, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano, and Slim Pickens riding that bomb all the way down. This was Kubrick's last black-and-white film, and I only mention that uh, because 75, 75% of today's Mount Rushmore is made up of black-and-white films. The only color entry is next. And it's one that I remember watching with my mom at least two or three times. It's from 1960, and it's 
the epic Spartacus. I am Spartacus. If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the most iconic scenes in film history. And when it was suggested to Kubrick, he told star Kirk Douglas, it's a stupid idea. That's just dumb. (laughs) Even great directors aren't right all the time. Describing Spartacus as epic would be an understatement. This is a $12 million film. Remember, it's 1960, about a slave rebellion boasting a cast of roughly, I don't know, 10,500 people. Uniforms and armor were borrowed from museums to dress the soldiers. There were only 187 stuntmen working in Hollywood at the time, and all of them were trained as gladiators and worked on this movie. This has an overture, it has an intermission, it's mammoth stuff. Once again, cast is phenomenal. Along with Kirk Douglas, we have Lawrence Olivier, Charles Lawton, Gene Simmons, not that Gene Simmons, Tony Curtis, John Dahl, Rope, and Woody Strode, who usually appeared in Westerns. My favorite performance is by Peter Ustinov as a slave trader. He is so snarky, and he's such a kiss-up to his superiors. He serves as a bit of comic relief, a tiny bit, in a very serious movie. I guess I'm not alone in my opinion of his performance since it won uh, Houston have a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Galls. Harry. He's so good in this film. It was written by then-blacklisted Dalton Trumbo, and it was good to see his name on the screen, which I believe was done during the restoration of him uh, of this film, post-Huac hysteria. Kubrick himself had a lot of problems with Spartacus, and he disowned it since he wasn't given complete control over the filming, and he clashed with studio heads and Kirk Douglas. A scene that was quite controversial and actually cut from certain prints of the movie involves a bathhouse conversation between Laurence Olivier and Tony Curtis and the merits of snails versus oysters. The first time I watched this, I had no idea what they were talking about. The second time I saw it, I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I wonder if my mom sat through that scene the first time when I watched it with her, thinking to herself, God, I hope he doesn't ask. (laughs) Here is the scene. So Lawrence Olivier plays Marcus Linicus Crassus, and Tony Curtis is Antoninus, who is known as the singer of songs. And it starts with Olivier's character. Do you eat oysters? When I have them, master. Do you eat snails? No, master. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? No, master. Of course not. It's all a matter of taste then, isn't it? Yes, master. And taste is not the same as appetite, and therefore not a question of morals. It could be argued so, master. My robe, Antoninus. My taste includes both snails and oysters. It's fantastic. And Lawrence Olivier's taste included both snails and oysters. And it's just wonderful. I love that scene. The scene is so, it's so cool. And Tony Curtis, um, I, when I watched it, when I watched this for this episode, I, you know, rescreened it again. And his casting is a little bizarre, you know, cause he's from New York city <laughs> and you know, I'm the singer of songs. Um, 
but it's just a fabulous film and, and it's just so wonderful. Let's get to the final head on our Kubrick Mount Rushmore. It's the first film in which Kubrick worked with an entirely professional cast and crew. And I'm sure my inclusion of it on my Kubrick Mount Rushmore will surprise some people. It's from 1956 and it's The Killing from IMDb. Crook Johnny Clay assembles a five-man team to plan and execute a daring racetrack robbery. Like any director, there are actors that show up over and over in their films. Think the Coen brothers, Wes Anderson, Richard Linklater. Uh, Today's quartet features Kirk Douglas twice and Sterling Hayden twice. When Douglas saw this film, The Killing, he wanted Kubrick to direct him in Paths of Glory. But when we talk about Douglas and Hayden, those are leads. I think the real meat is the character actors that directors use over and over. Joe Turkel is one of those for Kubrick. Not only is he in Paths of Glory and The Killing, he's prominently featured in another Kubrick film that you may be familiar with. He's Lloyd the Bartender in The Shining. I like to know the name of the man who's buying my drinks, Lloyd. Turkel was also Mr. Tyrell in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. The Killing features voiceover narration. Now, Kubrick hated it and didn't want to include it. The studio insisted. So Kubrick had the narrator give mostly false and misleading information. I just love that. The man wanted total control. The Killing employs non-linear storytelling, which I enjoy when it's done properly. This film and Pulp Fiction are both examples of when it's done properly. This film is a hidden gem of sorts, and I think it's underrated when it comes to Kubrick's films. And I wish Kubrick made more film noir movies because he was magnificent at it. So speaking of non-linear storytelling, there are some other things to look for when it comes to screening a Kubrick film. I did did this with Hitchcock, and I hope to do it with every director who visits our corner. IMDb has once again been extremely helpful with a little film You can watch as well if you search for Kubrick on their site. Uh, It's extremely well done. Here are Kubrick's film trademarks. Emotionally distant characters who are often dehumanized, dangerous worlds, controversial social themes, bold, simple colors, fluid camera movement, and steadicam mastery. His use of the camera, especially the steady cam, when he was doing it, are just amazing. Two more trademarks that I hoped were there, and they were, are Kubrick's use of symmetry or the one-point perspective and what is now known as the Kubrick stare. The one-point perspective is something once used by Renaissance artists that involves the creation of a frame and putting an image in that frame that forces our eyes to the direct center of the frame. And when Kubrick does it, it looks like not only that center is lined up, but everything else is perfectly lined up in the shot. It's amazing to see over and over once you know what you're looking for. The Kubrick stare involves a one shot of a character who stares directly into our eyes with their heads slightly tilted down. And sometimes it involves the raising of the head a little bit. Again, when you know it's there and it's something that the director does, it's wild how often it's done. It's, it's just magic. Both of those short films, and I saw them both, the, you can, they're, everything's edited together. It's also quick, but you see how he does it over and over in all these films. 
It can be those can both be seen on the interwebs with a minimum amount of searching. You just go on YouTube and look search for Kubrick's one point um, and or the Kubrick stare, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's so wild when you see them all cut together in a little short montage. Before we go, I wanted to give you my 16 to 5 in case you wonder where your favorite Kubrick film I didn't talk about today ended up. Here we go. Number 16, Eyes Wide Shut. Hated it. Number 15, Lolita. So creepy. So gross. 14, Barry Lyndon. Overblown garbage. Hated it. 13, The Seafarers. 12, Flying Padre. 11, Day of the Fight. 10, Fear and Desire. Nine, A Killer's Kiss. Now, a lot of those are are shorts that I talked about. Um, Eight, A Clockwork Orange. That will be included on an upcoming episode that we're going to probably title Great Movies I Never Want to See Again. Number seven, Full Metal Jacket. That may also end up on that list. (laughs) Number six, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Smoke them if you got them and get them if you don't. I mean, that thing is wild. Number five, The Shining. So many people hate this film, Stephen King included, but I really like it. And you already know the final four. Well, that is a wrap from here at Cinema Wellman. Hard to believe that there are only three episodes left in season two. Don't forget to send us any wish list items for our second annual holiday wish list episode where we will once again run down things that we wish movies would start doing, or we just wish they'd stop doing. We hope you will join us next week for a very special holiday edition of our Which Was Worse series. You know I'm going to pick on a couple of trashy Christmas horror movies, don't you? I am. (laughs) Well, we hope you're here anyway. And until then, take care.